You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Seven men. All with something to offer. But who can we trust? I know I've been described as a crusading newspaper editor and everything. I wasn't. A young alderman in St. Louis. He took on the old guard. His fellow governors voted him the most effective governor in America. I'm Bob Dole. I grew up during the Depression in a small town of Russell, Kansas, where I learned that you can't spend what you don't have. If you get hurt in a car accident, call me. I'm more Sparks and I'm on your side. Call 525-8000. Paul Simon for president. You, I stand with the small farmer, and I always have and I always will. I was facing foreclosure and got a hold of Jesse, and we got a telegram to our local banker. He offered to come sit down at a mediation table. Bring your trouble to me. Out of town, call collect. Perhaps no one in the century is better prepared to be president of the United States. Help you, God. No, not me, God. Turn right around and loan communist countries the money they need to strengthen their own economies. Does that make sense to you? Well, that's what we're doing. The Kemper's not afraid to take on the tough issues. That's the most Simon that I know. Well, I, I think I always would face the possibility that stands I take may cause me an election. Reach out for the independently thinking voters who sometimes have left our party in the past. Not their fault. We can't sell our cars in a market like that. And I'm tired of hearing American workers blame for it. A townhouse. A summer house. And a roadhouse. Or neighbor's house, a house, in a white house. I want to repeal the windfall profit tax, deregulate natural gas, and I'd also like to open up the tax system for future incentives. If on Tuesday morning you hit that booth, you had to have someone and fight for your job, which one would you choose? Bush didn't think he'd have a problem with Dan Rather. Knew him from Texas. Friend. The campaign had been tipped off. CBS was out for blood on linking Bush to Iran-Contra, on asking questions, getting an answer. Bush didn't see it. His aides were too uptight. Friend. Had been over the house. Met Barbara. Played tennis. Roger Ailes, all things media in the 1988 Bush campaign, made sure to meet his plane right before the interview. Okay, okay, do the interview, but if he goes after you, here's what you say. Just put this in the back of your mind. Why is Mr. Gregg still inside the White House and still a trusted advisor? Because I have confidence in him. And because this matter, Dan, as you well know, and your editors know, has been looked at by the 
$10 million study by the Senate and the House. It's been looked at by the Tower Commission. And yet this report you're making, which you told me or your people did, you have a Mr. Cohen that works for you, was going to be a political profile. Now, if this is a political profile for an election, uh, I have a very different opinion as to what one should be. Bush does know something's wrong as they arrange a video hookup. So famously, he's on this little TV screen being filmed on the big TV screens across America. Vice President, what we agreed to or didn't agree to, I think you will agree for the moment, can be dealt with in another way. Let's talk about the record. He notices as the promo comes on TV that this is going to be about Iran-Contra, where they hadn't said originally the interview was to be about Iran-Contra. And the promo was very negative. The Rodriguez testimony that you put on here, I just think it's outrageous because he was totally vindicated, swore under oath that he never talked to me about the Contras. Don Gregg works for me because I don't think he's done anything wrong. And I think if he had this exhaustive examination... You say that we've misrepresented your record. record. Let's talk about the record. If we've yeah. misrepresented your record in any way, here's a chance to set it straight. Right. Now, I did set it straight on one count because you implied from that uh, little thing, I have a little monitor sitting on the side here, that I didn't tell the truth. And I thought I was here to talk about my views on education or on getting this framework here is that one-third of... Well, I please, do have one. Please. I, I have one. Please find You have said that if you had known, you said that if you had known this was an arms for hostages yes. swap, that you would have opposed it. You also said exactly. that, that you did me, not know ask, that... May you, I answer that? That, that wasn't right a question. It was yes, a statement. It was a statement. Let me ask the question the if I may first. The president created this program. Yes, sir. I want you to be careful, I will be careful. It's not fair to judge my whole career by a rehash on Iran. How would you like if I judge your career by those seven minutes when you walked off the set in New York? This is something the campaign didn't plan, although that little bit of, you know, was no, was, was planned just in case. Well, now, would you like that? Well, Mr. I have Vice respect President, for you, but I don't have respect for what you're doing here tonight. Mr. Vice President, I think you'll agree that your qualification for president and what kind of leadership you'd bring to the country, what kind of government you'd have, what kind exactly. of people you'd have around him is much more important than what you just referred to. I'd be happy well, to... I want to be that. judged on the whole record. Later, Ailes says there are certain moments that define campaigns. You know, you have JFK versus Nixon in the debates. You have Gerald Ford and his gaffe on Eastern Europe. Bush had taken it to somebody that his own base really didn't like very much and still doesn't. This was one of those TV moments that changed a lot. Ailes and others attributed to Bush having a chance at all. Now, would you like that? When the Biden team got the call about the Kinnick stuff, no one was worried. Not about that. High noon would, with Bork. That was in four days. That was going to be the tough obstacle, but also a good opportunity for their guy. But this standard is not a measure of how we can evaluate the condition of our society. It cannot measure the health of our children, the quality of our education, the joy of their play. was kind of like something weird was going on. Why all of a sudden is this coming out? No, it's not because they weren't as smart. It's not because they didn't work as hard. It's because they didn't have a platform upon which to stand. It was because there was no platform upon which they could stand. 
you know, nobody thought about this in terms of the 88 Democratic primary. If anything, this story they thought about, it was about Bork. It was maybe as a signal from the Reagan White House, going after the guy that was going after their judge. They'd make up for it in the hearings. In network primetime, running live. The best thing Biden 88 could hope for. And the Republicans see what's coming, what they think is coming, and they attack. Alan Simpson, um, one of the ranking members, attacks him. Senators here are acting as the judges of judges, self-appointed, self-important senators, acting as the judges of judges. They're going to go through everything. How dare we? You know, who do we think we are? Biden plays it the opposite. He says to Bork during the hearings, I'm going to guarantee, and he holds up his mallet, that this little mallet is going to give you every right you're entitled to. You have every right to make your views known as long as it takes. You have every right you deserve in this room. This is a guarantee. And he says it with a smile. When I began these hearings, I indicated that I thought the primary function of the chair was to see to it, was not to persuade, to attempt to persuade my colleagues, although I had made a judgment myself, but to make sure that the issues were laid squarely before all of us and before the American people. Those who are supporting Judge Bork and do it with such great skill and obviously with such passion and principle that in a sense they undersell and undercut the wisdom of the American people. Notwithstanding the fact that there has been some advertising that I don't want to be associated with on both sides of the aisle, both sides of the question I should say, Notwithstanding the fact that there have been some shrill criticisms of Judge Bork, they have not been those who testified before this committee. And notwithstanding the fact that there has been many money spent by organization groups who have been referred to time and again here, I find it hard to believe that the American people did not get the vast majority of their information from those television cameras that are looking at us right now. Biden saves his own statement as opening statement as chairman for the key prime time when all the networks will be filmed. Bork in front of him. Terrific respect. Awesome constitutional scholarship. Here's, here's Ben Kramer. But as Biden swang into his questions, he knew exactly how he had to be. The eager student trying to understand, you know, in common words. Why was it that the venerated judge, uh, I'm not trying to be prickly here, why did Bork think it was okay to put cops in our bedrooms? Bork fell into the quicksand. Uh, No, not entirely, but I'll straighten it out. I was objecting to the way Justice Douglas deemed the right to privacy, and he explained on and on, and Biden nodded. Bork was using neutral constitutional language, Biden talking about cops in bedrooms. 
This was during the day. At night, there were nightmares. Tom Donnellan remembers being asked about the law school stuff. He went to Jim Biden, the senator's brother. Oh, yeah, that. What do you mean, oh, yeah, that, he remembers saying. Joe had been accused of cheating. It, it He cribbed legal notes in Syracuse. So what happened is he didn't, you know, in his paper, he had his own thoughts, his own writing and everything, but he used the legal notations and references. And a law student that was checking his work, they had students check each other's work, reported it to the dean. There was an investigation, and he had to retake the class. But Syracuse University insisted it wasn't plagiarism. If it was plagiarism, they wouldn't have let him graduate. Still, he had to, like, fly up a lawyer to Syracuse to get the records and bring it down for all the reporters. Joe Biden makes a press conference. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been dumb. I did something stupid 23 years ago. I couldn't figure out why I was living off extra-strength Tylenol. During one of the hearings, Biden had to excuse himself between one senator's time and giving the time to another so he could take a pill. The Senate hearings were long. Witnesses on both sides, constitutional talk, and Biden sat there, listening. TV was on. Couldn't let them see the chomp, another extra strength Tylenol. More questions to answer. Late at night. The staff now was as bad as the press, the way that they looked at him. Did you really take a stand on civil rights, like you said? Did you really win that debate contest? What's your IQ? You, you told someone that your IQ was, was better? Yes. Now that there was the plagiarism accusation and the law student accusation, RFK, someone had found a tape from last year where during a New Hampshire speech, Biden had turned to a voter and said, I bet my IQ is better than yours. That tape was surfacing now. What was the IQ, Senator? He found a plaque that showed that he had won this debate contest. He still had it. Well, cross that one off. But it seemed like every time they proved something, something else was coming. New York Times, Des Moines, Iowa, September 1987. A feud began brewing between the campaigns of Senator Joseph Biden in Delaware and Richard Gephardt of Missouri. After published accounts that Biden had used part of a speech by a prominent British politician without giving him credit. Sources in the Biden's campaign said that they suspected Gephardt. Yes, they suspected, and that they here is probably Pat Cadell, Biden's pollster and friend, didn't like Bob Schrum, who was working with Gephardt. Joseph Trippi, Gephardt's national campaign director, said, It wasn't us. If Biden's opponent and media's commentators seize on this episode as a case of plagiarism, it would pose a threat to Biden's candidacy because it would raise the issue of character, the same issue that drove Gary Hart out of the race. For example, the article said, Biden said in Chapel Hill that he never voted for tuition tax credits, but according to a legislative report issued by the NEA, he did in 1978. Biden is occupied and he's been roundly criticized for, for Bork because Bork became a verb you know, using politics, say, to oppose a judge. One of Biden's interns later recounted 
when Biden became vice president. This perhaps is unfair. From my modest vantage point, I watched Mr. Biden struggle to focus the hearings on Judge Bork's judicial philosophy rather than his private life in the face of overwhelming pressure from groups on the left. He insisted he would not tolerate ad hominem attacks. He would focus the questioning on Judge Bork's substantive views about the right to privacy rather than demonize him by conflating his personal and judicial views or really for private indiscretions. When asked to subpoena his video rental records, Biden refused. No matter. Those video rental records were leaked and showed up in the Washington City paper. Judge Bork, it showed, had a weakness for Cary Grant movies. We did not have a guide. We did not have any idea how to react to the floodgate that had opened, Biden's aide Tim Ridley said later. I sensed ambivalence among the press. The counts of indictment against Biden among the people with pencils in their ear, the, the print press, they felt it was shaky. They didn't really want to cover it. That's what I sensed. But this was an extraordinary TV story. You see Biden on the screen. You see Kinnock on the screen. Perfect for video. You could generally argue the large, small, and fine parts of what mistakes Joe Biden had made. But reduced to the video juxtapositions, the average American news viewer's verdict could only be brutal. Maybe we should have put a press release out after the Kinnick speech. The campaign was so divided on how to move at times. From P.J. O'Rourke, Parliament of Whores. Who is to blame for the grim state of affairs in the 1988 election? How about the media? Most things seem to be the media's fault. And members of the press did manage, who knows how, to make this election more trivial than it already was. The only question answered in the debates was, which one of you is which? And we've forgotten the answer. Nor can we blame the candidates. They were just looking for work. Something we expect every able-bodied adult in this society to do. Now... The guilt is to be found a little closer to home. We wanted a locale, poly-unsaturated, salt-free election slate. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been out on the lawn, rolling in every sticky detail of the candidates' lives. You know, O'Rourke, in his book, is demonstrating a real feeling, comic or not, that something was missing. Time Magazine. Another Democrat self-destructs with help from his rivals. Who killed Joe Biden's presidential campaign? The Delaware senator announcing last week he will stop being a candidate singled out one person. I'm angry at myself. But if Biden had simply aimed a metaphoric gun to his head, he had help pulling that trigger. It certainly was not Biden who alerted the press to the unattributed word-for-word quotations. And it strains credulity to think that reporters for two influential newspapers just happened to discover them simultaneously. In fact, informed sources have told time the primary tipster was from the rival presidential campaign of Michael Dukakis. 
This was an interesting revelation for Time magazine because previously Biden had thought and had been led to believe, and maybe some of the press had been led to believe, that it was Gephardt's campaign that had outed Biden on this story. A reliable source from someone close to the Dukakis campaign says that the campaign gave the video to the Times. Craig Whitney, the Times Washington bureau chief, said of Dukakis's involvement, I just don't know if your information is correct. In the journalistic world, that could be close to a confirmation. Then Time magazine got speculative. Any number of Democratic pros were happy to see him stumble. Pat Cadell, Biden's pollster, struck them as arrogant. Cadell talked about an inside insurgency within the party to take it over for the baby boomers. A number of people thought Biden came out as a glib, wise guy of style. The allegation that Time magazine made was absolutely true. And how Michael Dukakis found out it was true was that John Sasso, his campaign consultant, pollster, manager, magician, walked to his office and told him so. Joe Biden took the call of apology from Michael Dukakis. I'm sorry, Kitty and I were... This is terrible news. We were so sorry to learn of this. Um, Thanks for calling, as all Biden says. He didn't want to hear an apology, and he knew why they had done it. Because I'd beat them. The hearings were completed eventually. Bork was rejected. Biden got every undecided senator voting against, mostly on the issue of privacy, all while saluting his constitutional credentials as a matter of law. So a scandal turns into another scandal as Sasso resigns, Dukakis apologizes, and the press and the campaigns, Iowans, criticize the Dukakis campaign now. Biden supporters in Iowa are particularly livid. And just like the Biden story, maybe initially you could forgive the Kinnick thing, and then it's fueled by other incidents that come up once reporters start looking. They go back in the history and find that Sasto, to caucus his aide, had also used an attack video before against uh, Ed King during the uh, gov- former governor of Massachusetts during the 1982 campaign. Now, it turns out this is not an attack video, but actually an attack tape. And Sasso had manipulated a tape to make it seem like Ed King was saying things, played it for reporters off the record, never anything used in an ad. For the record, Sasso, after the election, said, you know, nothing that he did in this, in the Biden case, there was no dirty trick. Biden had used the quote without attribution. And and once it was released that a Dukakis aide might be involved and Dukakis came out and denied it, Sasso had to go in the room and tell the governor what he did. I never had a headache in my life, Biden said. That's hard to know, given his history, if that's true. You know, he had an incident where he had to sit and rest after a few words of a speech in, in Nashua, New Hampshire. Five weeks after he had given up his campaign, he suffered an aneurysm that nearly reached his brain. You know, he was just fortunate that no brain tissue was impacted by the flow of blood or the direction that the flow of blood went. 
The case could be made. Jacques Germond and Jules Whitcover make it or suggest it. That had the plagiarism scandal not come out public. And if Biden was continuing to put himself under stress of a campaign, Biden may have not made it to the campaign. Tonight, I'd like for you to join me in considering the future of this great nation. In December, Gary Hart re-enters the race. Let the people decide, he said. Well, I believe that fate and circumstance have now seen fit to bind that future to this nation's willingness to inform the minds of our citizens. He was disappointed that there was no other candidate that could take the help. At a small restaurant in Indianola, Iowa, he met voters for coffee and handshakes with his wife, Lee, accompanying him, autographing copies of a pamphlet of speeches on the issues, such a Gary Hart thing, wearing brown tweed, wearing cowboy boots, climbing on a chair to deliver a speech to those voters, who he was not speaking to, at least not directly, was the press. And this time... Gary Hart insisted he wouldn't be answering any questions at all. Iowans are up for that on a retail level. What scandal? Donna who? He was like a celebrity. The opponents now were once again thrown off. They had the giant killer in the race, and now they were getting used to him being out of the race. Nobody doubts that Hart has ideas. Frankly, I wonder why he hasn't accomplished many of the things he talks about. So said Gephardt upon his re-entry to the race. Glib phrases about shiny new ideas, Bruce Babbitt said. His campaign was a disturbing, had a disturbing tone of arrogance. Simon's campaign manager said, We got to get rid of this guy. And Simon himself says, I hope he's not fooling himself. You know, 28 years ago, John Kennedy challenged this nation to win the race to the moon. I want to challenge all Americans to work with me and the members of the Congress for drug-free schools in every community in this Meanwhile, a team Dukakis, I don't understand why John did it. Michael was explaining to all sorts of people, other senators, Joe Biden supporters, friends, how outrageous what his friend John Sasso had done engaging in this type of politics. The phone, for many days, would not stop ringing. Richard Ben Kramer. No one could remember as the campaign loft on Chauncey Street when it became clear this was not over. It didn't matter what Michael had said. He was taking heat and he was wilting. Maybe it was the question still a swirl in the press pack. The ditty bops were camped in the hallways, trading the story up to spine tingling scandal. What did they know? And when did they know it? Everyone could see that weekend in Iowa what this meant to Dukakis, what it took. He was hauling a greyhound full of ditty bops and national press. And between stops, he made time for everyone who wanted a shot at him. Taking the blame, insisting on the blame, he marched around the state, 24 stops in three days, apologizing. We had six wonderful months in Iowa. He'd tell each little crowd in each little town. Something unfortunate happened this week, and as you know, maybe there are bumps in the road to the presidency. It was grim work. He looked gray and weary. His eyes were sunken in a protective wince. 
In front of the crowds, he'd stand up straight, but between stops, or back and forth to the van, his eyes sought the ground. Shoulders would hunch forward towards his ears. But he meant to tell every reporter who would listen, I'm a guy who's been involved in public life for 25 years. I'm the kind of guy who's always believed very strongly that the only way to campaign and the only way to be a political leader is to campaign positively. I just don't understand why John did it. The public contrition was over in a week. Michael stopped apologizing. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Senator Bob Dole of Kansas won a clear victory in the Iowa Republican caucuses tonight, and Pat Robertson, and Pat Robertson, the former television evangelist, pushed Vice President Bush into third place. Mr. Robertson's strong showing in a heavy turnout threatened to be a humiliation for Mr. Bush, who until now has led the Republican presidential field in virtually all national polls. With 98% of the 2,487 precincts reporting in the Republican race, the vote was Dole, 37%, Robertson, 25%, Bush, 19%, Kemp, 11%, DuPont, 7%, Alhaig with a technical 0%. Yay, Pat Robertson, exclaimed Senator Tom Harkin, Iowa's top Democrat. It means the Republicans have a big problem on their hands. Some Republican regulars were appalled by Mr. Robertson's showing. This is very disturbing because they can't elect him, let alone nominate him, said Len Dabb, the owner of a lumber yard in Grimes, Iowa, who has been active in Republican politics since 1953. Doesn't prove anything because you can pack a caucus. But leaders of the religious right hailed Mr. Robertson's performance as a sign of the importance of their brand of Republicanism. It proves that evangelicals are a major base of support. Mr. Dole was elated over his strong showing. I think it puts a whole new focus, at least out of Iowa. We thought Bush would finish second. Chuck Grassley, Mr. Dole's leading Iowa supporter, was more pointed. Bush is going to have a lot of explaining to do. The Bush team was optimistic. This is the beginning. I can't say that I'm not disappointed, but I'm not down. So Mr. Bush said. Bob Dole won the Iowa caucuses. And... Thus, I was kind of on the ropes, so it was a it was a dog eat dog time in there, where both felt that they had to do well in New Hampshire, uh, and the tensions were high. Uh, some of our own people were discouraged. Ben Kramer again. It was rock and roll on the Dole plane after two or three hours sleep. Flying east, big plane. Bahamas Air 727, and not a spare seat from the cockpit to the narrow tail. Anyway, no one stayed in a seat. 
In mid-takeoff, the Dole staff was still perched on the armrests as Chuck Grassley and pollster Dick Worthlin were dispatched to talk to the press. The political world has been changed. The mountain moved. An army on the tarmac in New Hampshire as the plane landed. Media was all over. Cameras were mounted on aluminum ladders so they could go over the heads of the crowd. Ten to twelve bodies deep as Dole comes out of the plane. Dole was going to speak on national security, a presidential speech. Gorbachev was listening. But Bush's team was already on the ground. They had arrived before the Iowa loss, armed with Governor John Sununu. He can't try that I'm one of you in New Hampshire. February 8, 1988, Washington insider turned prairie populist Richard Gephardt tonight narrowly defeated fellow Midwestern Paul Simon as Iowans rendered the first verdict on the Democratic field, still largely unknown to most of the nation. I am adamant that other countries be asked to treat us as we treat them, that there be a two-way street in trade, that it not be all coming here without our ability to go there and sell our products. Gephardt led with 31.3 to Simon's 26% and to Caucus's 22%. Jesse Jackson would get 9%, four times higher than his 1984 showing. Al Gore, who had stayed out of Iowa specifically, was rewarded with that lack of participation by Iowans with just 1% of Iowa caucus votes. Turnout was high. The 1980 record of 10,000 caucus goers was surely broken. Gephardt did best with voters with less education and lower incomes. The question I want to ask today and what I ask every day is, why are we afraid to begin asking other countries to buy more of our agricultural and other products? Bill Carrick of the Gephardt campaign attributed the win to his anti-corporate populism and his economic nationalism. His message was labeled protectionist by editorials all over Iowa, but he angrily insisted on the stump that the establishment does not understand the hurt caused by closed factories and low wages. In 1972, in 76, in 84, Iowa had been important. Outsider Carter coming in second place to the uh, uncommitted ticket. Strong finish. Same with Gary Hart. Same with McGovern. But had this game been played too much? It was an open question in 1988 if the gaming of what we were supposed to interpret of Iowa was too transparent. Pat Robinson's showing heralded the evangelical vote in the Republican Party. But it didn't seem to suggest that he'd win the nomination or get any closer. In the final few hours of this heated race, the vice president says he is confident, despite the fact that he and Senator Dole are apparently running neck and neck down the stretch. They called it the inoculation ad. One ad that perhaps the Dole campaign could run, and it would just solidify the lead. It would just prevent the other campaigns from attacking him. They thought about it, 
One of his pollsters, Tom Rath, who was an ally of Senator Warren Rudman, who in this Republican Civil War, Bush had the governor, John Sununu. Bob Dole had significant Senator Warren Rudman. That's a pattern that would run through many of the states. Tom Rath, an ally of Warren Rudman, conquered lawyer, said, you know, thought about, what are they going to do to us? Okay, it's probably going to be taxes. Let's have an ad that runs in New Hampshire where Bob Dole's saying he won't raise taxes. Dole balks at this. He doesn't want particularly, he wants to be able to close some loopholes in the tax code and and generally doesn't like this, this idea of these pledges. But I will say income taxes. Okay. Good enough, Rath feels. Plans were made to film him. This is the idea that Rath wants is to get this kind of like 10 or 88 authentic video of Bob Dole actually saying this in a speech rather than doing one of these to the camera. You know, I'll pledge to veto any attempt to raise income taxes. But at the speech he films, the first speech, Dole never ends up saying it or he stumbles his words too much to use. It's not a solid, ad-worthy pledge. Rath tries again setting up a camera at the Hilton Merrimack, but candidate is late, and then he's in poor spirits. No ad is filmed. Then at the University of New Hampshire, Dole speaks again. The campaign didn't like what he said. It sounded like it was read and not believable. And by the time all this happens, they see a poll, Dole's up in New Hampshire now, no reason to run it. There was a sense that things were changing. Dole's seeing on the TV free media coverage where Bush is really getting out there, shaking hands with voters, being a little more expressive than he ever was in Iowa. Just a few weeks ago, you were really way ahead, and now it seems that the gap is narrowed. Things are tighter. Oh, very what happened? 1980 revisited. Remember when I came blowing into here and the polls shot down for Ronald Reagan? Turn it right around here and beat me. That's what's going to happen tomorrow. The Midwesterner was more comfortable where he was. The Easterner's more comfortable where he is. He's thrown snowballs at reporters at one point. And Dole keeps seeing this coverage on TV. When he was out there doing all these physical things, and I was walking around the drugstore trying to find a few people to shake hands with a grocery store, he was out there shoveling snow and running a big snow plow. And of course, that was all over the news. And it was right the weekend before the primary. Then Bush hits with what's called the Senator Straddle ad. George Bush and Bob Dole on leadership was the big words on the television screen. Bush got the IMF treaty done. Dole straddled taxes. Bush won't raise taxes. Dole never said he wouldn't. He didn't say he will, but he didn't pledge. And devastatingly, what the ad said is, Bush won't raise taxes. Dole can't say no. Well, it's totally inaccurate, and I think uh, the Vice President of the United States uh, shouldn't do things like that. This whole ad doesn't almost doesn't air. You know, the Dole campaign's thinking about running an ad where George Bush has had all these jobs, but he's just never left any footsteps. And so it has an ad of a man walking, 
in the snow, something New Hampshire would understand, but there's no footsteps seen. And they decide not to go with it. Why, why be negative? Bush is thinking the same way. And Lee Atwater says, well, we couldn't sell this negative ad. Bush thought it would look desperate. Roger Ailes uh, talking with a Bush aide, Bob Gordon, just basically flat out said, he'll lose without it. Bob Gordon says to him, go back in. He's your client. You owe him that recommendation. So they do. They get Governor Sununu, Barbara Bush on board. Sununu says, look, New Hampshire won't see this as negative. This is a comparison ad. And Barbara Bush had no problem with it. Okay, Bush says, it's your business. Let it run. I wanted to send her straddle. That was the ad. Yeah. And taxes and all this stuff. And, uh, yeah, it really hurt. The ad went for 1,800 rating points. That's 18 times airing over the three days before the New Hampshire primary. I want to thank the wonderful people of New Hampshire. I think you just don't like being told what to do. In a TV studio in New Hampshire, it's a small state with a lot of candidates, only a couple of TV stations. And when, you know, Dole and Bush are in the same studio, Bush says, you know, how the family doing or something to that effect. And Dole says, stop lying about my record. In my gut, I knew it was over, Dole said about his whole campaign after the New Hampshire result. It's probably not well known how close things came. Maybe one ad not airing or airing to Dole becoming president. On the Democratic side, New Hampshire came in as expected. Dukakis won, and Simon and Gephardt battled for second, which Gephardt won, but he was running out of money. We were always living hand-to-mouth, Gephardt said. We had to spend every dollar as we raised it. He knew he had to have a win somewhere after that. He had $60,000 to spend, so he decides to spend it on the South Dakota primary. An ad that was called a kill ad. They had tape of Mike Dukakis in Iowa saying that farmers should replace their crops with better selling ones in the world market. Flowers, blueberries, and Belgian endives. They replayed Dukakis saying the quote with an announcer saying, Belgian endives? Dukakis had an ad that he could respond with, but decided not to go negative. The Belgian endive ad gives Gephardt a much-needed win to stay alive as we head into Super Tuesday. South Carolina was where the Bush campaign had his best chances. The governor, Carol Campbell, was a client of Lee Atwater's and an ally for Bush. And there were Reagan fans in the state. No slippage like in the Western or Iowa Republican parties. And VP Bush was running close to Reagan, that meant close to South Carolina voters. But more than that, no one could avoid South Carolina. Dole wanted to skip it and kind of tell the press, well, I'm not contesting South Carolina and get away with that. But then Senator Strom Thurmond endorses him. So he feels like he has to compete. Then Kemp decided he would make one last stand, spent all the money he had, $30,000, 
Then there was Robertson with a huge amount of 700 club viewers in the state. Bush's counter in New Hampshire, he would throw snowballs. Here, fireballs of a sense. He appeared before two dozen evangelical preachers and said, Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. As Jules Whitcover and Jack Grimond wrote, it may have sounded a little strange coming from Episcopalian from Connecticut. But it played. Bush got 48% of the vote while the other three split it. Dole 21, Robertson 19, Kemp 11. Combined, their votes would have beat Bush. The primary was set up with one thing in mind. In the end, you break everybody's back. So said Lee Atwater. Gary Hart was sort of enjoying the new advisor-free, press-free campaign with a visit to his hometown. Meeting with the hometown folks, speaking at the Chamber of Commerce, Ottawa, Kansas's most famous citizen. Then his recent nemesis, the Miami Herald newspaper, ran another story about him. The Hart campaign was being secretly financed by a California video producer, and a person on the payroll did free work for him, paid by the video company but working for Hart, unreported as a campaign contribution. Ran in the Des Moines Register, too. And then there are questions hovering about all that 1984 campaign debt. The people are the strength of this country. I said I wanted them to decide about my candidacy. I got a fair hearing, and the people have decided. And now I clearly should not go forward. Once again, Hart was out of the race. As Gephardt, Simon, Dukakis struggled for who would be first and who would be second. Simon pushed trust. Dukakis apologized, and Gephardt pushed his Hyundai message. Gary Hart said of his second entry into the race, I had no money, I had no organization, no infrastructure. It was admittedly quixotic. But I felt my issues weren't being heard. Maybe it might even work. On the surface, Super Tuesday, a collection of mostly southern states voting at one time and a novel invention of 1988 that we still have in some form today. It's been played with through the years. On some level, it was a trap for the Dukakis campaign. I mean, all of those southerners voting at once, and he's a New Englander. I mean, it was designed to increase that region's influence to really get someone who was not Dukakis. There was actually some good views Massachusetts would be voting on the same day as Super Tuesday, as would Rhode Island, and those were going to be instant victories for the Dukakis campaign. Also, Dukakis had more money and more organization than any of the others, and so he looked to big states voting during Super Tuesday, Florida and Texas, where he could spend, and the broke Gephardt and Simon campaigns could not. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When you looked at Florida, it was not truly a southern state, not in the Democratic primary. It was about the condos on the East Coast and in and to some extent the voters in Miami. Dukakis had an organization there already. Gephardt goes to speak at one of these Palm Beach condos and sees everybody with Dukakis hats on. For Gephardt, the other problem was Al Gore. I welcome foreign products. We have to compete against them, no question about it, but it's got to be a two-way street. Yes, when I spoke about the, the tradition of internationalism before and being involved with the world, protectionism is again a retreat from that democratic tradition. Of course, we have to have strong leadership from a president who will negotiate the removal of unfair barriers. But to have an automatic formula that triggers a trade war because of some external cue uh, based upon bilateral, exactly even trade balances, that's nonsense. The next president has to have convictions, Dick, Gore said in a Dallas Super Tuesday debate. As he attacked him on abortion and taxes. And then he laid into him for having voted for Reagan's tax cut bill. Yes, Gore was attacking Gephardt on the left and the right. And for Gephardt, this new candidate, sort of new candidate, who like stepped out of Iowa and wasn't expected to do much in New Hampshire anyway, was now hitting him like a fresh linebacker on the field. And something else, unlike Iowa, where every person Gephardt met was a voter, where he could use his shoe leather strategy. In the South, the race was too big. He'd go into places and no one knew what he was, why, who he was or why he was talking. But nothing could compare to the ad that Gephardt would see when he flicked on his TV. An ad of a red-haired person who looked a lot like him doing somersaults, moving from one position to another. The Gephardt record, Reaganomics, minimum wage. You know where Michael Dukakis stands, but Richard Gephardt? He's still up in the air. Used to one-on-one campaigning, he couldn't respond to a TV attack. Jesse Jackson could to some degree remain above the fray. Super Tuesday would be a chance to shine. It would be foolish for any of the campaigns to attack him with his appeal to African-American voters that they would need in the fall. He urged the candidates to stop bickering. Don't play into the Republicans' hand. This had worked for him before. In 1984, he had a moment in a debate between Hart and Mondale where he tapped on the table and broke up the candidates from arguing. We can't do this or the Republicans will win. He did this in the media in Atlanta. He warned that the Democratic campaign could devolve to the level of the Republicans. He toured the South preaching about healing, about the new South. He met in Selma... Mayor Joe Smitherman, the same mayor who tried to arrest him in 65. Jackson would win Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Virginia, exceeding expectations on this day. He comes out a clear winner. So does Dukakis. Dukakis from Massachusetts wins Texas and Florida. And so does Al Gore. 
Al Gore, who hadn't won anything up until now, wins his home state of Tennessee and also Kentucky, North Carolina, Oklahoma, and Nevada that was voting that day. It was Gore's moment, to some degree Jackson's moment, but Dukakis got a double bang, according to his advisors, from both winning but also showing that he could play in the South. Now, news coverage at the time didn't show that there, the turnout, the electorate for 1988 Super Tuesday in the southern states was 35% liberal, where the electorate itself was 17%. None of this was reported on the day. What was important was that Gephardt won only one state, his own state of Missouri. It's time to end a presidential campaign. But for me, that ending will also be a beginning. He'd continue on to Michigan. He'd talk about the media ignoring plant closings, ignoring job layoffs. But Jackson would win there. Gets a huge voter turnout, particularly in Detroit. Shocks everyone. Let's change that situation. Jackson did phenomenally well among black voters. They turned out in record numbers. But Jackson also won some congressional districts that are predominantly white. Jackson told the struggling auto workers and wage earners he would fight the corporations that closed their factories. It was an electric message here, and they responded. The Michigan campaign was about message, authenticity, and the soul of Jesse Jackson versus money and technology. Flesh and blood versus nuts and bolts. He's got signs. He's got delegates. Susan Estridge, who was the campaign manager for Dukakis post-Sasso, claims that the campaign wasn't afraid to be beaten by Jackson. And so what the Dukakis campaign is afraid of, it's not so much losing to Jackson, but that if they allow Jackson to win too much, campaign fight might start. You know, Mario Cuomo has endorsed nobody up until this point. Dukakis wins Wisconsin, though. Jackson makes a strong showing there. The size and the timing of the New York primary could determine who the Democratic candidate will be. New York became high noon for Democrats and a place for a decision to happen. All the campaigns agree that Dukakis is leading here, although not generating much excitement. Gore so far isn't generating much support, and Jackson is pulling in big, enthusiastic crowds. The most cameras per square inch of any media market. Al Gore, now... Wipe your mind clear of the Al Gore you know, the lockbox, the global warming, and think now of Al Gore the Tennessean, running for Reagan's White House, occupied by Reagan, running for moderate to conservative Democrats. He's now thrust into New York, where there's a number of liberal voters and probably needs a win to show that he's far more than just a Super Tuesday fluke. He needs to show his electability. That's what he runs on. Dukakis hopes for a Cuomo endorsement, but it's not coming immediately. Jackson can contend in New York. This is a place where African-American voters are an important part of the primary electorate. A New York win puts Jackson in realistic in realistic contention for California with a broad message. I'm not a token candidate. I can speak on foreign policy and economic issues. People of all races can listen, just like they did in Michigan and Virginia. The New York Times said, remember, a Republican primary today. This is evident in how much the attention was on the Democrats by now. 
Dole's campaign, having lost badly in Super Tuesday, was an afterthought. The latest ABC News Washington Post tracking poll gives Michael Dukakis a small lead over rival Jesse Jackson, but that lead is within the poll's margin of error. So it's New York and Dukakis versus Jackson. Okay? Okay. I have run in 24 elections in 24 years, and I know what it is to be a candidate. Then out of nowhere, Mayor Ed Koch of New York City looks at the race and endorses Al Gore. I hope the winner will be Senator Albert Gore of Tennessee. I was rather shocked, Gore admitted later, but obviously excited. And it turns out there are two things that help. One is uh, Gore had David Garth, his campaign manager at Connections, to Koch. And also he attacked Jackson a bit or criticized his stance on the PLO and also said, you know, we're not electing a preacher for a president. Dukaga's campaign remained among the fray. For a day or so, all you saw in the news in New York City was Koch. How am I doing, mayor of New York? Popular, if edgy, and maybe even a little conservative for a city, while socially liberal. Walking along with Tennessee Al. Taking him down Fifth Avenue, going to the Fulton Fish Market, hey. Asking everyone to vote for him. Dukakis didn't like it, but the team didn't blink. They had much organization. And Gore's gimmick was going to throw them off. They had confidence. They at least could keep telling themselves that. It soon became apparent that Gore was just part of the Ed Koch show. Jackson came under fire today from New York Mayor Ed Koch, who called Jackson a liar and said he's unstable under stress. Jackson declined to respond directly to Koch's remarks. And that in most of these appearances, Ed Koch was standing in front of Gore instead of the other way around. And it was mostly an anti-Jesse Jackson event, perhaps more than Al Gore wanted. Jews would have to be crazy to vote for Jackson, Ed Koch said. Turning point occurred when Koch appeared on David Brinkley and said that Jackson had exaggerated his role during the death of Martin Luther King in 1968. Gore had to say, that Koch was speaking for himself. Jerry Austin, Jackson's campaign manager, said, Ed Koch is an idiot. Jackson never publicly disagreed. In a fateful debate prior to the New York primary, Gore attacked Jackson and attacked Dukakis for not being firm enough, Jesse Jackson, for supporting the PLO. Gore went a little further and attacked Dukakis on Weekend passes for convicted criminals. Gore never mentioned a name. He didn't say Willie Horton. Um, the caucus of the program was conceived by a Republican governor before him and was canceled. Jim Pinkerton, research for Bush 88, was listening. It totally fell in our lap, he said. If I can make it here, I can make it anywhere. So said Dukakis on winning the New York primary and even attracting some praise from Jackson. Uh, his campaign, Jackson said, was decent and civilized. Well, Koch had called him a liar and a coward. 
And then there's an interesting interplay. I don't think I wasn't aware until I was doing more research for this cast with Amaro Cuomo. I'll let uh, Germond and um, Whitcover uh, explain here. As matter turned out, Mario Cuomo delivered no endorsement until it was no longer needed. Dukakis won the primary. He polled 51% of the vote to 37% for Jackson and 10% for Gore. For Gore, it was the end of the road. Cuomo had been playing a cute game all through 1987 and the early months of 1988. Although he had officially taken himself out of the picture, Cuomo had been studiously ambiguous about his attitude towards the other candidates. The assumption of most Democratic professionals was that the New York governor would finally endorse Dukakis, the fellow governor of the Northeast. But Cuomo sent mixed signals. For example, sounding as if at times Paul Simon was his choice. Then in a series of conversations with Susan Estrich, Andrew Cuomo, the governor's son, we know now the governor of New York himself, at least in the eyes of the Dukakis strategist, seemed to be seeking a basis for the long-awaited endorsement. After the campaign, Cuomo said his role in meeting with Estridge was only to ask questions on his father's behalf, and that he did so with all campaigns still in the field. But the fact was that Super Tuesday had clarified the situation to the point that the only realistic question was whether Mauro Cuomo would endorse Dukakis or sit it out. Whatever his purpose, the concerns raised by Cuomo were intriguing, both for what they said about the political climate in the state and for the political advice they seemed to offer. The younger Cuomo asked Estridge if Dukakis might not be willing to soften his down-the-line support for the letter written by 30 senators on the Schultz plan on peace in the Middle East. Perhaps Cuomo suggested Dukakis might say something to the effect that the letter could have been written better, perhaps more moderate language. Secondly, Andrew Cuomo wondered if Dukakis might be willing to say publicly that he would consider Jesse Jackson as a possibility for the vice presidential nomination. He seemed to be suggesting, clearly, with the steps that would, in one case, make Dukakis more acceptable to the most militant Jewish leaders, and in the other, would have the precise opposite effect. Such a suggestion, Dukakis and his manners quickly understood, was suicide. Indeed, the formula was politically destructive enough to make cynics wonder if Mario Cuomo was still nourishing dreams of another scenario, the collapse of the frontrunner that would set off a round of demands for the governor of New York to rescue his party. It didn't happen. They read that play. The race that had started in February 1987, where two candidates, significant candidates, were out of it before 1988 even started. A House member, senator, frontrunner, deficit fighter, quirky bowtie guy, steaming in the wreckage. By April of 1988, the party pretty much had its nominee. There would be more primaries leading up to the Democratic Convention in Atlanta, but the nominee was known. It was known to the country, and it was known to the Republicans. And they had no interest in waiting. Because if you came to me from Mars and said, look, how do you get elected president of the United States? Or how do you get a nomination of your party? How do you get elected president? I'd say, look, there's not a lot of rules in this business. Now it all looks good, Liatwar would say later about the Bush campaign. But Bush was not his natural type of guy. Reagan was. Strom Thurmond was. But there is one rule that seems to be true more often than not, and that is, running around the track, experience pays off. Dole probably would have been. How did Ronald Reagan get the nomination of the Republican Party? Running around the track. How did Richard Nixon get it? Running around the track. How did Walter Mondale get it? Running around the track. So I felt like experience 
was an advantage that George Bush had that no one else was contemplating. As he said in non-family language, he had to make chicken salad out of chicken, well, something else. There's an invisible circle. Let's look at this as a circle. That you have to get in to be seriously considered president of the United States. Now, you can get in the circle, and that doesn't guarantee that you're going to be president. For instance, Rockefeller, I think, was a guy who got in that circle and never got to be president. Hubert Humphrey was a guy who got in that circle and never got to be president. But getting in that circle, that invisible circle, is critical to being able to win the presidency. So we started out a race pre-primary in which our candidate was the only candidate in either party, Republican or Democrat, that was in that circle. There were a couple of other guys hovering around the circle. I think Bob Dole came very close to getting in the circle at certain points in our process. And Gary Hart came close to getting in the circle. My whole vision of the world is in terms of analogies and word pictures, and I looked at it as that the circle was a little boat we were in, uh, and out in the water were a hell of a lot of fins, 13 or 14 fins, however many other candidates there were. And the whole name of the game was getting your boat to the other side and beating back these other fins to keep anybody else from getting in the boat with you. And part of Atwater's chicken salad recipe was a 3 by 5 index card. This is my history can beat up your politics. So what are we looking at here? What can we learn here? And you have so many different things. I mean, what I could just bullet point them. One is just the gaming of Iowa and New Hampshire and how that's worked out over the years. We see different things in different elections. How much is Iowa matter in the elections coming up? How much is New Hampshire? Is Iowa going to set up New Hampshire or do you get at a point where you're just discounting it to a centric for rest of politics? That was a question in 88 is a question today. The changing in, in, in fundraising, um, the type of candidates that run for president versus those that we might consider leaders in Washington. You know, and certainly 2020, this election season, isn't the first where some people have looked at the array of candidates and said, whoa, isn't there more? And this certainly happens in 1988. The use of the kind of argument about the Rust Belt, I'm one of you, populism, economic populism, and that message by both Dole and Gephardt are present in 1988 as much as they would be present in our politics today. The kind of nominal issues that become issues in a campaign and can and they can have a candidate giving the withdrawal speech, the ups and downs of the various candidates in a multi-candidate race, who's the flavor of the week, the dynamics of a multi-candidate race, and of course, how attacks on one candidate will ricochet the best laid plans of primary and caucus scheduling that really the Democratic Leadership Council wanted to more effect to have a Southern candidate. They end up with a New Englander. Now, of course, four years later, they're going to get Bill Clinton. And that's going to be largely a function of Super Tuesday and the DLC's effort, but also Mario Cuomo once again not entering the race. I also think it's interesting to see the intra-party fighting, you know, these are people that largely agree with each other on so many issues, but you see in a primary the magnification of these small differences into something that's much, much larger. Dole's essentially saying, I'm not going to raise income taxes. I think that's a pretty big pledge. The Bush campaign's, you know, going to say something like he can't say no, which makes him look like a, you know, a high spender. On the Democratic side, you see these small differences too. 
They were all basically against what Reagan had done in the White House. In a couple of cases, some of them voted with Reagan, uh, and those votes are exploited. You have a candidate like Al Gore who's finding votes where Gephardt sided with Reagan attacking that. Other times, depending on what group he's in front of, you know, boasting that he could support the administration, say on the MX missile, where, you know, the others didn't. This magnification of what are really essentially small issues compared to the issues between Democrats and Republicans is something interesting to watch in a primary. 1988, the election had now shifted to Democrat versus Republican, and there were going to be huge differences between George Bush and Mike Dukakis. But Dukakis starts out very high in the polls, and the Bush team's concerned, of course, about this. They conduct a focus group in Paramus, New Jersey. Now, it's hard to think of, like, New Jersey now. You see it blue on the map of states in a presidential election. Yeah, well, that's true. But it wasn't true in 1988. It was uh, very much a contested state. And as went New Jersey in 88, so probably was going to be the nation. From Richard Ben Kramer, they gathered in a shopping mall in Paramus for a focus group with the sort of voters that Bush, Inc. would have to turn around. They were suburbanites, 40,000 a year or better. They used to be Democrats, but they voted for Reagan. Now they were for Dukakis. Why? Well, he seemed able, middle of the road, non-threatening. Seemed like a good man, a successful governor, and smart. They watched from behind a one-way mirror. There was a moderator at a table with the voters. But Lee Atwater had asked, you get me this stuff to beat this little bastard, he told Jim Pinkerton in research. And one more thing. I want you to put it on this card. The card was just three inches by five. If there were negative issues to beat him, it had to be simple enough for this. One concession was made. Use both sides. Pinkerton came up with all these entries. One of them came from that debate where Al Gore asked Dukakis about prison furloughs. There was one case where a murderer, Horton, got a furlough from Massachusetts and then attacked a couple in Maryland, raped a woman, and stabbed her fiancé. The moderator now told the focus group this story and the prison furloughs. Then he said Dukakis was against the death penalty. Then he said Dukakis was against prayer in schools. Then he said Dukakis vetoed the bill to require kids to say the Pledge of Allegiance in school. Within 90 minutes, half the voters had switched to Bush. I want to thank you for listening. The website, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Look, you can support this show. Uh, we have a expanded podcast, an extra podcast, where I talk more about some of the issues that I'm talking about, you know, some of the episodes, how they're made. We also have some special content that's just for the extra cast and archived episodes that don't appear on the iTunes feed. So join that today. It can be as little as $2 a month.
Appendix. After you write a podcast and finish recording one, then it hits you. Despite this podcast being about a legal pad and a half worth of different vignettes and information from various sources, you miss a few things. And often you have more on the legal pad than make it into the the podcast, Forgotten Little Tidbits. Like Bruce Babbitt telling reporters, many candidates could still get into this race. You know, Bill Bradley, Mario Cuomo, or maybe even Bruce Babbitt. His telltale knack for making reporters laugh and not being able to inspire many to go to the polls for him. Al Haig giving his support to Bob Dole when he had 0% of the vote. I remember Dennis Miller on Saturday Night Live at the time saying, Dole must have said to Al Haig, gee, thanks. Paul Simon being told by his advisors during a debate to keep a normal, you know, normal full-length tie in his pocket. And then during a debate to pull it out. If my policies don't make the country better, then I'll wear this tie. He kept it in his pocket. He thought it was stupid. We played, we began this podcast with a Rather and Bush situation, but I'm not sure I made enough of the point that I think that TV moment was an early example of a politician. And you can say justified if you want, if you're on that side of politics. Rather really did seem to want a gotcha moment. Or you could say it was justified for Rather because Bush was evasive. You can go all the way to the end of the Walsh prosecution, and that was the conclusion of... Um, Prosecutor Walsh, that there just had never been any effort to release the documents, or and then Bush did end up pardoning some Iran Contra folks. So, you know, nonetheless, it's an it's it's an effort by a politician to go after the reporter, right? Instead of actually addressing the issue, I mean, he makes a nominal. There's a few fits and starts about addressing certain issues and constantly filibustering about, you know, wanting to defend his record. But really what it is, is, you know, well, you walked up to step the set during the New York Open, and that has nothing to really do with running for the presidency, but it doesn't matter, right? And, and, and that's one of the first times that you kind of see that happen. And so for people that think that, you know, perhaps like a, a politicians attacking press, this is new, um, there's your 88 moment. And one of the reasons I wanted to give a bit of the extended versions because I think all anyone hears in history is the, you know, the, the, the part about you walked off the set in New York and everything. And I wanted to give, you know, the setup. So you showed that, you know, rather is pretty annoying there. Um, but he has a point. Um, he's a journalist. Bush is running for president. So anyway, the lesson is there. Verbal combat is the most important thing. Um, whether there's an, an, a basis behind it. There's a lot more to say on Gary Hart than we were able to say on the cast, and a lot more on Gephardt. I, I think the Dukakis choice, the the randomness of it. I mean, he was a few percentages in the polls, governor of Massachusetts. Um, it was such an improbable event selecting Dukakis for the nomination that... It had to do with the melee of multiple candidates running at the same time and various scandals, one of which he caused or his team caused. I mean, it, it was political physics that led 
Dukakis to get the nomination in Atlanta more than anything else. Sure, he ran a good campaign. He ran the best of the campaigns and, and worked well in the scrap. There are several moments where he could have gone down. This and so much more is what I'll talk about in the premium cast. If you like the show, you'll like more of it. Uh, it can be as little as $2 a month. You get some archives and you get some extra stuff. More for more. But mostly, it's there to help the program. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.